Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley and I want to thank you so much for joining us. This episode deals with developments in Ukraine, the strange case of Ginny Thomas, deal or no deal between the U.S. and the U.K., and the European Union throwing down the gauntlet against big tech. First, though, is Ukraine. As of this past weekend, we've heard the Russians announced phase one of their invasion is somehow complete. Does that mean they've backed off trying to occupy the capital of Kiev? I don't know. They say they're going to concentrate on the eastern Donbass regions. Should they be believed? Likely no. The Russians have absolutely no credibility since they said they wouldn't invade Ukraine and then turned around and did just that. We've heard much lately from the West about ramping up sanctions and the increasing flow of weapons to the government of President Zelensky. Are they working? Don't know that either. We do know the citizens of Ukraine are fighting for all they're worth. If by chance the Russian invasion is not going to plan, it's because of their fortitude. It may not be enough, however. Putting aside all the chatter about chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons, the plain fact is Putin has enough money coming in, sanctions or not, to draw this thing out over the long term. No matter the noise, one has to ask, what constitutes victory for both sides? For Ukraine, winning would seem to mean pushing the Russians out of their country. That would include Donbass, the region of the country that now seems to be most sympathetic to Russia. Right now, military victories aside, that would seem like a tall order. If not pushing Putin's forces out completely, maybe the continued fierce resistance will get him to take diplomacy seriously. Yet that gets back to the earlier point. Can he be trusted to keep his word? Again, no, I don't think so. And what is victory for Russia? Is it a complete occupation of Ukraine? Is it assurances from NATO that there will be no further expansion eastward? This is an important point since the Russians insist that way back in 1991, then Secretary of State James Baker assured Russia that there would not be any eastward expansion. Yet it was not listed in the treaty that came out of those negotiations and 14 countries have joined NATO since the fall of the Soviet Union. In the meantime, the propaganda war continues. A Washington Post article details how difficult it is to get accurate information about the conduct of the war. One city, Makariv, was touted as being liberated from the Russians, but later that claim had to be walked back somewhat. Government officials attributed the initial rosy picture to attempts at morale building. On the other side of the equation, Putin uses the right-wing talking point cancel culture to reference what he says are Western efforts to remove Russian culture from the world stage. Aside from being untrue, you would go to war over this. This is one of the more absurd notions that I have ever heard coming out of a head of state, that somehow Western cancel culture, what, what are they trying to get rid of? Are they trying to get rid of some of the giants and titans of classical music who happen to be Russian? Are they saying, oh no, we, we can't listen to that? The great orchestras of the world cannot play compositions by great Russian composers? That's nonsense. It is complete and utter nonsense. And Putin knows it. But since he's using cancel culture, 
It's convenient. It's easy. Now, it all, boil, it all boils down to what I referenced in last week's episode. What is victory and how do you get Putin to climb down? President Joe Biden, speaking in Warsaw, Poland, said, quoting here, For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. End quote. The White House had to walk that one back, insisting Biden was not talking about regime change. Putin, for sure, won't cede power because Biden thinks he should. This particular set of statements, which apparently were ad-libbed by Joe Biden in Warsaw, has caused a firestorm all across the world because it seemed to the world that Biden was saying Putin had to be gotten rid of one way or the other. Now, whether you believe that or not, it is extraordinary to hear one world leader say that about another. Again, no matter how bad Putin's conduct, and again, uh, don't get me wrong about this, Putin's conduct has been worse than bad. It's, quite frankly, been barbaric. When you bomb kids, when you bomb children's hospitals, when you bomb schools, that's barbarism. Let's call it for what it is. Now, there's also a troubling report in the UK Guardian saying women and child refugees fleeing the violence in Ukraine are being targeted by sex traffickers. A groups say it's not just at the Polish border, but in several locations where Ukrainians are fleeing to safety. Men and women are often offering help to those women and children only to lure them into situations where they are exploited. This and a whole lot more should be laid at the feet of one man. And that one man is Vladimir Putin. Up next, Jenny Thomas, we now learn, did a lot more than attend the January 6th Stop the Steal rally last year. And for her husband, the Supreme Court Justice, can you spell recuse? This is The Intersection. It's springtime and you're listening to Mark Riley, the intersection of politics and culture. Welcome back to The Intersection. Jenny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, is, as my wife would say, a useless waste of space. Now, that's just my opinion, and probably my wife's as well. My most vivid memory of her until recently was when, during her husband's confirmation hearing, she escorted Clarence Thomas up their driveway carrying a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. You all remember that? It was a long time ago, but I do remember it vividly. Fast forward more than 30 years, and you got to figure they at least get to eat in better restaurants. Clarence Thomas is now the longest serving justice on the high court. His wife is charitably described as a conservative activist. We mentioned last week that she admitted attending the so-called Stop the Steal rally on January 6th of last year. We now know she did much more than that. Much, much more. Jenny Thomas, in the immediate aftermath of the November 2020 election, began messaging White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, trying to get him to pursue efforts to overturn the election results. 
In all, there were 29 such, such messages coming at a time when Trump and his allies were vowing to take their fight to, guess where, the Supreme Court, where Jenny Thomas's husband sits. Now, to be fair, Jenny Thomas never referenced the court or her husband in any of those messages. Yet Thomas, for her part, can tell the tone by this one quote. You can tell the tone from this one quote from a message on November 10th. Quote, help this great president stand firm, Mark. Not me, Mark Meadows. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governments at the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. End quote. If that weren't enough, she also importuned Meadows to convince Trump to make unhinged Sidney Powell the lead and the face of the former president's legal team. And even Trump couldn't go that far. We all know how that turned out. Now, let's be clear. Ginny Thomas has the absolute right to speak her mind about whatever she wants. You have to wonder about some of the things she told Meadows she believed in. She told Meadows, for example, that he should take a hard line with staffers and congressional Republicans who wouldn't buy the stolen election line. She sent him a link to a video produced by a man who promoted the idea that the Sandy Hook massacre was a false flag operation. As sinister and ugly an allegation as I've heard. And then there's this in a message to Meadows. Quote, Biden crime family and ballot fraud co-conspirators, elected officials, bureaucrats, and social media censorship mongers, fake stream media reporters, etc., are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now. And over coming days, they will be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. This is a quote, by the way, that was widely circulated on right-wing websites. At the very least, and I say the very least, all this is bad optics. It's threatening to be more than that. There are calls for Justice Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from any election or January 6th committee cases that may come before the court. He has yet to recuse himself from any of the election-related cases to come before the court thus far. And keep in mind, the only person that can force Clarence Thomas to recuse himself is, guess who? Clarence Thomas. Now, even more problematic for Thomas is that there have been calls for him to either resign or be impeached. That, by the way, is not going to happen. Yet we do know this. Jenny Thomas, wife of a Supreme Court justice, lobbied the White House chief of staff with the express purpose of overturning a duly constituted election. In one message, she laments what she calls the end of liberty. If liberty is the right to use illegal means to keep a president in power, then yes, that may have in fact been the end of liberty. Speaking of the Supreme Court, last week saw one of the most disgusting episodes of utter nonsense seen in America's legislative history. I'm talking about the confirmation hearings of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, where multiple U.S. Senators made complete fools of themselves and the office that they hold. She came through it with her name and dignity intact. 
But for me, there is one image that all, and I mean all, the vitriol of the Ted Cruz's, the Tom Cotton's, and the Josh Hawley's will never, ever erase. That is the image of Judge Brown Jackson's daughter, Layla, straight up beaming at her mom on the first day of her confirmation hearing. That snap was taken by a black photographer from the New York Times named Sarah Beth Maney. Aside from capturing, capturing, that is, a golden moment, it also points out the importance of having a black female photographer at that paper to take that picture. Not saying a white male or female or a black male photographer would not have taken the same picture, but Ms. Maney did, and kudos to her for doing so. Next in this episode, deal or no deal when it comes to a trade pact between the U.S. and the U.K. And the European Union throws down with big tech. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. In the UK, where I am now, American politics is largely an abstraction. Yet when the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee says a trade deal between Great Britain and the US won't happen if the Northern Ireland peace deal is or continues to be used for political purposes, it simply will not happen. Congressman Richard Neal is from Massachusetts and has had a keen interest in Northern Ireland for decades. Ways and means, for those who don't know, writes trade deals, and any agreement that does not have the committee's support simply will not happen. I mean, it really is about as simple as that. I know this because my cousin was on the Ways and Means staff for more than two decades. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about here, let me try and explain it very quickly. When the United Kingdom decided to separate from the European Union, which is called Brexit, one of the things that they agreed to was that there would be no hard boundary between Northern Ireland and Ireland, and that there would be free movement of goods and uh, uh, different kinds of things between the two countries, because the Republic of Ireland remains a member of the EU. Northern Ireland, even though they voted to remain are now technically, because they're part of the United Kingdom, separate from the EU. So they decided to draw a border in the water, strangely enough. And almost immediately, the United Kingdom looked to renege on that particular agreement. Now, what they didn't necessarily bank on was the steadfastness of Americans and particularly Irish Americans, in saying that if you're going to use the Northern Ireland Protocols, the Good Friday Agreement, as a political football, you will not do a trade deal with the United States. There are those who apparently believe Brexit ended the agreement because Unionists in Northern Ireland didn't agree to the deal done with the EU. Getting a trade deal with the U.S. is important to the U.K., because it needs to show something positive from the decision to leave the European Union. That's been a heavy lift since the Brexit deal was signed. 
it's much, much less important to the United States. There's talk of Congressman Neal leading a delegation to Dublin and to London to reinforce the U.S. position. Keep in mind that President Biden also has a vested interest in maintaining peace in Northern Ireland, something he values more than any tentative trade deal. Fact is, Boris Johnson and his crew have always been prepared to blow up the peace deal in Northern Ireland in order to use it as leverage against the EU. Keep in mind the Brexit deal is one they signed, apparently not paying attention to its provisions. Won't say it's typical, but... And speaking of the EU, they've taken a hard line with big tech companies. This is a very big deal. They've enacted what's called the Digital Markets Act, and its stated intent is to exert some power and influence over the largest tech companies in the world. Among other things, it stops companies from using their various services and resources to block out access by competition. That means, for example, that Apple could well have to allow alternatives to its app store on iPhones and iPads. Google, as another example, will no longer be able to collect data from different services to offer targeted ads without users' consent. What it means collectively is a body blow to the way big tech has gotten used to functioning. Violators of the law, and there will probably be some, and is set to go into effect later this year, but violators could face fines of up to 20% of their revenue. That would be billions upon billions of U.S. dollars. And that's not all. There's another piece of legislation that would force social media companies to police their platforms more aggressively than they do now. Now that's a double track piece of legislation. That one's not as far along as the Digital Markets Act. But it is certainly something that the EU is taking the lead on because people are, quite frankly, getting tired of seeing disinformation, rampant disinformation on many of these big tech websites and big tech services. And I mean, people are getting tired. Now, you wonder, what is big tech going to do to respond to this? Some would argue, by the way, that they brought this on themselves with practices that appear monopolistic and self-serving. Compare this with the relative inactivity of regulatory moves on the part of the United States Congress. Yes, they brought the heads of major tech companies before congressional committees, and in some cases raked them over the coals. Yet none of it has produced a single piece of federal legislation to curb their activities or their power. Ironically, the law passed in the EU, despite furious lobbying by the industry, and even the Biden administration said it discriminated against American companies. Regardless, I see the new laws enacted, that is, by the EU, as a good thing. I say this although my contacts with the world of algorithms and online exclusivity is limited. And by the way, it's limited on purpose. Big tech has made boatloads of money off people who barely know how they operate or why when they look something up on Google, they suddenly see ads for the same items coming up on their feeds. I still don't understand it completely. Yet at the very least, these platforms and companies should be made to explain how they operate and why. 
and they need to operate certainly within the bounds of propriety, if not regulation. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.